0: Sound Health Radio Show, where we talk about the crossroads of the environment and our health with Richard Talk to Me Guy. And as we know, Sherry Edwards is working on the Sound Health Portal. I would suggest going to soundhealthportal.com, scrolling down just a bit, and click on the Watch How button. You'll see a short video explaining how to record and submit your first recording. Then go back to the Sound Health Portal, scroll down to Current Active Campaigns such as cellular inflammation, PTSD, TBI, or neuroplasticity, and choose one that is of interest to you. Click on that campaign and click the free voice analysis button, and the system will walk you through submitting your recordings. You'll receive an email and you'll report back, usually in one to two hours. To hear and share replays of this show, about 20 to 30 minutes after you hear the outro music, go to talktomeguy.com. Scroll down that page and you'll see the show at the top of the episodes page. There are also archives of hundreds of hours of shows available there as well. There's a microphone icon at the bottom right corner of all the show notes. If you'd like to leave me a message regarding a question for the guest, or a suggestion for a guest, or anything else, or just say hi, just click that and you'll be able to record it right from your computer. With that, Dr. Christy Sutton is interested in asking why health problems occur, what the root causes are, and what are the safest and most effective solutions to health problems are the foundation of her writing, teaching, and critical practice. Her personal health struggles and her desperation to find answers to her own serious health problems surrounding Crohn's and celiac disease have led her down the alternative healthcare path and to look for ways to find and avoid genetic landmines. Her first book, Genetic Testing, Defining Your Path to a Personalized Health Plan, and its corresponding Genetic Detoxification Report, were the precursors to the, creating the Labra Genomics Educational Webinars and to writing her up-and-coming book, The Iron Curse. The book, The Iron Curse, is inspired by diagnosing her husband and many patients with hereditary hemochromatosis and iron-related health problems. It takes a deep dive into hemochromatosis and other iron-related disorders. Her husband's hemochromatosis led to liver problems and likely led to the development of a pituitary tumor that caused Cushing's disease. From her experience as a clinician, she has discovered that there is a silent epidemic of undiagnosed and untreated hemochromatosis, and this epidemic is being driven by myths, misperceptions, and a failure on the part of the medical community that should be diagnosing people with hemochromatosis, a disease that is easy to screen for, prevent, diagnose, and treat. The Iron Curse course and soon-to-be-released book are powerful tools for ending the epidemic of undiagnosed and untreated hemochromatosis, and they give people the information they need to diagnose, prevent, and correct iron-induced damage. Dr. Christie joins us to talk about her soon-to-be-released The Iron Curse. Is your doctor letting high iron destroy your health? Welcome, Dr. Christie.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me on your show, Richard.
0: All right. Well, this is about a six-hour show, or it could be easily. (laughs) (laughs) I've listened and read, and boy, have you got a lot of information. It's really – I love that. Yes. You're prolific. I'll say that in the best of ways. You're prolific with just an edge to possessed. and I really respect (laughs) that because it's really amazing how much information you have gathered and then taken that and turned it into The library genomics courses, or now the Iron Curse. It's really, it's quite stunning, actually.
1: I appreciate it.
0: On the title page of the Iron Curse, it says, the most common and easiest to treat disease you have never heard of until now. Mm -hmm. My real question is, why? But I want to, I have to form it a little more by saying, tell us more about this. Having reviewed much of your material, it's really shocking to me that that's a true statement. Could you talk about about that a little bit?
1: I'd be glad to. So when I say that this is the most common and easiest treat disease that you have never heard of, I'm including both hereditary and non-hereditary hemochromatosis, which basically means that you have too high of iron, and it can be high either for hereditary reasons, like inheriting a gene where you absorb more iron, the hemochromatosis genes, or it can be high only for really environmental reasons. Um, for example, just diet, environmental reasons where you get too high in iron, but you don't have a gene, regardless of if you have a gene or not, the end result is basically the same, which is that you have too much iron and iron is a heavy metal and we need it to survive But there's this Goldilocks principle where if you don't have enough, which is what most people have heard of, which is iron deficient anemia, um, then that's a problem. But also the other side of the coin and the other side of the pendulum is you can have too much. And that is a commonly undiagnosed and untreated condition, but it's extremely easy to diagnose, screen for, and treat and prevent. And I go through those steps as far as the lab tests and the symptoms and the genes and the iron curse. But um most of the people that I see that have high iron, while it's not everybody, there are a number of people that have high iron that don't have the gene. Most of the people that I see that have high iron do have a hemochromatosis gene, um, one or more. And about 30% of the population has one or more of these genes. So when you have 30% of the global tested population has one or more of these genes, then you really don't need that manipulation to actually develop high iron to still have an epidemic of this issue. And unfortunately, the current, there's current medical myths and misperceptions that are leading to this not being properly diagnosed and treated. And, you know, we can talk more about those now, but some of the biggest issues are that um, doctors are not ordering the full iron panel and or in the case i this is more common than, you know, most people realize or want to accept, but often not only do they not order the labs, but if they do order the labs, they often ignore the out-of-range labs and don't talk to their patients about it. Um, and then also, most doctors are not doing genetic testing on their patients for the hemochromatosis genes or many of the other important genes that I discuss in my books. Um And the doctors that are doing genetic testing on the hemochromatosis gene, by and large, don't understand that if you only have one gene, you're still at a high risk for hemochromatosis. There is this myth that is really passed down from, you know, the CDC down, which is basically that if you have only one of these genes, you're not going to develop hemochromatosis, hereditary hemochromatosis, you're safe. And that is a myth and a misreception because the majority of the people that I see that develop high iron actually have only one gene. Um, so that's a mouthful. I'll, I'll let you kind of digest that and let me know if you have anything. <laughs> I'll, <sit> <laughs>
0: I'll sit down for a few minutes and have a beverage and think about all that. Um, that's amazing. And Just as a sort of, I'd call this a ground rule, but it's not really a rule, just for a reference point. What are the differences between genetics versus epigenetics?
1: Right. So um, the way that I like to say it is, you know, genes are the hand of cards that you're dealt. It is what it is. You can't change your genes. You know, you inherit what you inherit. Um, for better or worse, you know, either you choose your parents well or you don't. And then that's kind (laughs) of the end of the story. Um, And then the epigenetics is really how well you play the hand of cards that you're dealt. And so the epigenetics is how your environment will influence how your genes get turned on or turned off. Because a large part of our good genes being turned on or our bad genes being turned on has to do with the environmental switches. And this is why, you know, exercise, eating a good diet filled with lots of clean vegetables and fruits and um, good sleep, these environmental factors, they have a huge effect on our health. And so if if they if the environment didn't play a role, then it would just be, you know, you're born with the genes and then your DNA is your destiny. But for the majority, DNA is not our destiny. I feel like there's always, even in the most grim genetic situations, environmental um, factors that you can take into account and use to either your advantage by creating an environment that's going to really produce the healthiest outcome or they can, the environmental factors can play As a disadvantage and really put the accelerator on your health decline maybe because you're smoking or you're not sleeping or you're drinking too much alcohol or you have high iron that's undiagnosed or treated and so on and so forth
0: and I'd like to go into that just a little bit further with I'd like to use obesity as a reference point we hear a lot of talk about obesity and a lot of people have that don't get the difference between genetics versus epigenetics. I I believe you can be genetically precluded to be obese. However, I think there's a predominant amount of people who are obese, not only because of their diet, what they're smashing in their face, but also because of what I a term I use often is total toxic load, which in, for me, would be the fact that would kick the epigenetics into a position of defending the body or shielding the body, or you'll have much better language for that. But let's talk about epigenetics, genetics, and obesity a little bit.
1: Sure, I'd love to. So um, if you look at the timeline of obesity in the United States and on the planet, we've had an exponential rise in obesity just over the last um, 40 to 60 years. And um, if you, you know, if you look at pictures of people on beaches 100 years ago, then you didn't see a bunch of obese people on the beaches. And these days, if you go to pretty much any beach in America, more or less, or in the world, um, especially in America, you're going to be seeing a lot of obese people. Um, you don't have to go to the beach. You can just, you know... Go walk around anywhere, and you see a lot of obese people. This is a new, very new change um, in our the obesity rates and the number of people with obesity. Now, gen, genes don't really change that quickly. I mean, it takes really a very long time for gene. It would take if this was a genetic change. It would take you know like potentially 100,000 years for or at least 10,000 or 20 or 30,000 years potentially for the genetic changes to create the obesity. Um, But this change and the exponential rise in obesity has occurred in a very small window of time, much smaller than genes would allow. And it's happening for the most part globally. There are some areas that don't have A really high obesity rate, like um, India, but even in India, there's you know it's increasing. Um, So it's the environmental factors. Now, one of the things that really started around the same time as the obesity epidemic was the invention and um, really ubiquitous use of high fructose corn syrup in our Mm. diets, especially here in America. So that is not a hundred percent cause versus correlation, but it certainly didn't help since we know that high fructose corn syrup is really bad, um, extremely hard for the body to handle that amount of sugar and even the toxins that are in it. Um, but it's really what we're dealing with now is there's just this really global change in our environment. People don't walk and exercise. Um, if you, if you need to go to work, you're probably sitting in your car for a while rather than walking there. Um, People are eating more sugar, eating more processed foods, not exercising. And it's ultimately changing our, the obesity rate. Um, Some people, it doesn't matter, you know, how much they eat. They're never going to be obese. That's just not who they are. Other people you know, it doesn't take a lot to make them obese. And that has as much to do also with the fact that humans thousands of years ago did not live in a calorie rich environment where they could just stop by McDonald's and get, you know, a hamburger and a soda and some fries. It, thousands of years ago, humans really had to, hunters and gatherers, they really, even if they were doing, um, you know, agriculture, it was still a lot of work to get the food you needed, prepare it, live through the famines, that type of thing. So in a way, you know, our genes have evolved to be able to hold on to fat and really save that fat for the next famine. And that's the same situation with iron. You know, the genes that because iron is this extremely important thing that we need just like Glucose is extremely important. Um, iron is extremely important, and so our bodies, a lot of people that have these genes have the hemochromatosis genes, have evolved to be able to hold on to iron because so many people have died from iron deficient anemia through childbirth, low iron environments, getting injured, bleeding, etc.
0: And I want to go back to high fructose corn syrup for just a moment. I don't know if it was invented before there were GMOs. I'm not quite clear. I'd have to look at the timeline about it. But it seems like you have the double punch. I have bad words I almost put in there. uh, (laughs) Double punch of high fructose corn syrup now being derived from GMO corn. So that means it's sprayed moments before it's harvested to defoliate. So now, I mean, it's not only used on the crops, but it's also then also sprayed on it as a, a defoliant right before it's harvested. So now we have a delivery system for glyphosate into the system is why I consider to be a neurotoxin and a toxin overall. Mm -hmm. I can't form that into a question, but I have so many bad words about high fructose corn syrup and GMOs.
1: Right, yeah. And, you know, my understanding is that the reason that high fructose corn syrup is so common in America is because of the, you know, Cuban embargo where they basically um, did not want to get... Sugar, cane sugar from Cuba, and I think that went back to the political um, environment at the time. And so high fructose corn syrup became an American option to replace sugar, and this is one reason that. We basically, if you go to Mexico, you don't see a bunch of high fructose corn syrup there. you know sugar is cheaper. Most places around the world, you'll still see a lot of sugar options. America is particularly bad in high fructose corn syrup because the government has highly subsidized the corn industry and high fructose corn syrup is one of many products that that subsidization is um, putting those products into our into our diet and environment.
0: I have many bad words about all of that. Someday we'll do a whole other show on that. <laughs> <Don't move laughs> yeah.
1: Along. Yeah, um, but there there is more glyphosate in it. And then I even read an article years ago, although I can't don't, don't I can't give you the exact, you know, facts on it, but I read an article years ago where they found that there was even some mercury in the high fructose corn syrup from the processing of it.
0: Mhm. That sounds correct. Mhm. I can't quite get the source in my mind. I've done about a half dozen shows with Stephanie Seneff, who's one of the thought leaders on glyphosate, started squawking about it in the early days, and it's bad. But we'll move get on to detox. I want to I wanna ask about our methylation detox pathway. Now, Sherry mm-hmm. Edwards talks a lot about methylation, the great methylation chart, and every time I see it, my eyes roll up in my head because it's mm-hmm. so many things. It's like a box of marbles but talk about our methylation detox pathway and if we can, can we help it? That's a two part
1: question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, in the iron curse, I have a methylation cycle in there and I kind of try to keep it simple. And this is something I've taught about in the lab genomics courses. And, and I, Maybe I just want to keep things simple because I don't want to think too hard, but I, I really think with methylation you can keep it pretty simple and still understand it and do a lot of good with it. And so basically, you know, everybody has these key methylation pathways in their body, and all methylation means is that you're adding a carbon to something. But the the adding of a carbon, like anybody that's taken biochemistry, you haven't. If you take about chemistry, then you know that adding that carbon group can and will dramatically change like whether an enzyme is going to turn on or turn off or whether it's going to be able to do its job or not be able to do its job. And so the carbon groups that methylate, methylating something, either adding a carbon group or removing a carbon group, that is ultimately like a huge genetic switch in our body. And so what what ultimately drives the ability to turn that those genetic switches on and off is the methylation cycle because the methylation cycle is what's like the output system for here's the methylation stuff that you need to go, here's the carbon groups that you need to go and turn genes on or turn genes off. And so it's kind of like doing the hard work to produce enough of the methylation byproduct, which is known as SAMI. And that's kind of the whole point of the methylation cycle. You want the SAMI, and then the SAMI goes out and it does a lot of different things in the body. But if your, if your methylation cycle isn't working properly, it's kind of like the wheel gets uh, stuck and it can't turn, and then you can't make the SAMI. And there's a couple of different places within that wheel turning that people tend to get stuck, and sometimes that's for genetic reasons. Sometimes that's just because they don't have enough of specific nutrients, largely B vitamins. And so um, there's a, you know, a, the most well known gene would be like the MTHFR gene, which is a gene that will take vitamin B9 and it will activate it into a methyl-activated B9. So vitamin B9 is also called folate and we get folate in our, vit- in our diet through eating green vegetables. And then our body takes that folate and it puts a little methyl group on it and then it turns it into this methylfolate. And then that methylfolate keeps the methylation cycle going um so some people don't have they they have an mthfr genetic variant that decreases their ability to take the folate from their diet and activate it to the methylfolate and then if they can't make the methylfolate then their methylation cycle gets stuck um there's a number of other environmental factors that can mess up not, uh, not making enough methylfolate. Like um, if you don't have enough vitamin B2, then that MTHFR enzyme is not going to work properly regardless of your genes. Um, if you don't have enough B12, then you're not going to be able to move that methylation cycle like you need to. So there's a handful of different vitamins, which to summarize, basically, you need B2, B9 and the methylfolate, um, the methylfolate form. B12 and the methylcobalamin, that's the methyl-activated B12, and then TMG and then B6. You need those to be able to get that methylation cycle to go. And then once that methylation cycle is going, then it can do what it needs to do. Um, A lot of people, if they have these genes where their methylation cycle is getting stuck, they'll end up with a high level of homocysteine. And high homocysteine can create a lot of cardiovascular damage, which can then go on to create cardiovascular disease, dementia, Alzheimer's, a lot of problems. The other issue with the homocysteine redux, I'm sorry, the other issue with the high levels of homocysteine is that it will convert into something called homocysteine thiolactone, which is a really toxic chemical that goes and damages DNA and creates a lot of problems. And the body has a way to get rid of that homocysteine thiolactone. It uses this enzyme called PON1, and that's the same enzyme that our body uses to detoxify glyphosate. So people that have a lot of glyphosate, are going to have more of this really toxic homocysteine thiolactone because they can't convert it back to homocysteine. This is complicated when you hear about it. It's much easier if you just go look at my book or the workshop where I have a picture of it and then it's like much clearer. But so I'm just trying to tie this all back to kind of what we were talking about before.
0: So you're saying the PON one can actually help us detoxify glyphosate?
1: Yes. Yeah. So the the enzyme evolved to be able to detoxify homocysteine thiolactone and it can detoxify a number of other things. However, um, you know, our body has certain detox pathways and they are what they are. Like our body doesn't create new detox pathways to detoxify the thousands of new chemicals that the chemical industry is making. We have what we have and some of us genetically are better at detoxing than others some of us are just better at detoxing because you know we're doing the right things to help our bodies detoxify some people are just really bad at detoxifying and they're kind of like the canaries in the coal mine and so basically our body has this pon one enzyme to detoxify homocysteine thiolactone however it also helps to detoxify glyphosate because that's just, that just happens to be the enzyme that can also detoxify glyphosate. Um, and the problem is that if you have a really high level of homocysteine, and if you're being exposed to, home, to glyphosate, then you're more likely to be creating a lot of homocysteine thiolactone, and then that homocysteine thiolactone create a lot of irreversible damage. Um, so, But there's certain things you can do to help you know, your body make more PON1, make the PON1 that you have more, um, efficient. Some people just genetically have PON1 genes where they don't, um, detoxify as well, or they don't make as much PON1. Um, people that have kidney issues and liver issues, they're more likely to not make as much PON1, um, which, you know, we have an epidemic of people with kidney and liver issues in this country too. So there's just a lot of things that are not, going in our favor
0: <laughs> i'm not laughing at you i'm just like yeah boy, <laughs> howdy. wow um and i don't know why i have this as a note but i i've heard a lot of people talking about beets recently like suddenly beets have been discovered like wow beets are really amazing and i've always thought beets were amazing. Uh, <laughs> they're are are amazing um, they
1: are
0: and they're beautiful. delicious I was a chef for mm-hmm. twenty years, but that's another show. Oh, wow. Um so I can think of like a dozen ways I'd like to eat beets and drink juice and do everything with beets. What are the why are beets are in the mix of methylation? They seem to have benefit to our methylation cycle. Is that correct?
1: Yes, they do. They they help the body to be able to methylate more. Um, they promote methylation and um but they're also really good for the liver. Um, And they help to cleanse the gallbladder, So that also will just kind of promote a healthier body. And then the other thing that beets do is they increase nitric oxide. And nitric oxide increases blood flow. So that's why a lot of people will use beets to potentially support lower blood pressure. Um, so it's just, they're, they're a wonderful food in general, but they do support methylation. I'm not exactly sure how they do, but I know they support methylation.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. And now we're going to jump, everybody take a deep breath because we're jumping. Um, we're going to jump to when and how did genetics as a tool light up for you? I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, obviously you're on fire and I mean that in a good way. In spite <laughs> of our backstage conversation, you're really on fuego about, genetics as a tool mm-hmm. when, did that, yeah. when did that like light up for you it wasn't it wasn't something that happened in chiropractic school was it you, you No, like, i
1: think i think you know um when when i look back at it all it's it's just um like my life's work um is it's this has been something that every step of my life has been leading to this point and um I can give you a couple of different things that have kind of fueled that fire. But I, you know, I, like you said in the intro, I had Crohn, I have Crohn's celiac disease. My mother, she was paranoid schizophrenic. She died far too young from schizophrenia. Um, Mm. She gave me her celiac gene. Um, I know for sure that I got the celiac gene from her. And there's a large percent of people that have celiac disease that it only affects their brain. It doesn't affect their gut. And I believe that she was one of those people that was just never properly diagnosed and treated. Um, I can never prove that. So, you know, that and that was a part of it. And then. I, but I didn't realize she gave me the celiac gene until, you know, really not that long ago when I finally got my father to do genetic testing and realized that he didn't have it. Um So, but I, let's see, in chiropractic school, I remember learning about the MTHFR issue and then going out into practice as a very young, naive doctor and giving a young lady a methylfolate supplement that, changed her from being suicidal to being very happy. Um, and then, and I thought, you know, I bet it, I bet she has that gene where she doesn't methylate at that point in time. The, I didn't have the knowledge to use 23andMe at that point in time. And it wasn't until years later that I realized that 23andMe was a cost effective, easy way for people to learn about the MTHFR gene and many other genes And so I had a number of patients that were asking me about these different genes. And there were a number of sources out there on the Internet that they were citing that were, in my opinion, giving really bad advice. And so I had to kind of go back and look at it. And that was really where genetic testing, defining your path to a personalized health plan, which is my first book, was born out of that. And then I created the Genetic Detoxification Report that goes along with that book, just because I realized in order for this book to have any value, people need to know what their genes are, and so I just created that out of necessity, um which has kind of been the story of my life, figuring it out for necessity <laughs> reasons, and then, while writing that first book, what really was you know key was um I realized my husband had that hemochromatosis gene and then walked him through the steps of getting diagnosed and treated. And because I went through that process with him and I saw what it looked like, I became very savvy at walking my patients through the process of looking at their genes and labs to get them diagnosed. And then I would refer them out where they would ultimately get mistreated, given bad information Um, and sometimes they would come back to me and be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that they're telling me this when it's so clear I have this issue. You know, my iron levels are lower and I feel so much better. And then sometimes they would come back to me and say, well, they said that I don't need to worry about it. So I'm not worried about it. And this became a very frustrating situation to me. And all along, you know, through these many, many years, I'm continuing to look at people's genes, looking at people's labs um, as a part of just, you know, my patient care plan. And then I Finally, one day decide, well, I have to write a book about this and I have no intention for it to become, you know, the um, in-depth piece of work that it is now. But, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> so uh, that's where I am now.
0: And I'm going to jump just for a moment because somebody from chat, we have a text chat room and somebody just asked the question of "Does sweating bypass all pathways what cannot be detoxed through sweating? Uh,
1: yeah, does sweating bypass all detox pathways? Um, I don't know specifically what exactly cannot be detoxed. So there's a lot of different things that can create toxicity. So like we're talking about iron, so I want to talk about that for a second in regards to sweating, and then we'll talk about other things. But iron is not largely detoxed through sweating. You can lose a small amount of iron through sweat, but by and large, the body has conserved all pathways for iron loss because it's so crucial for survival. So the main way that we lose iron, which most people don't think of as a toxin, but in high quantities it is, we lose that through blood. Now, if we look at other toxins, um, like glyphosate and, um, you know, mercury and, you know, BPA, Sweating certainly helps to detoxify all of those things and many of the other things that, you know, I haven't even mentioned gets most things out, but it can't, I think, get everything out. Um, And I'm not really sure exactly what that list would be, but it certainly gets a lot of things out in general, which is why some people have really had their health turn around by doing these long sweating detox programs because they finally are able to get rid of like chemicals. I think, I think what sweating's really good at getting rid of is like chemicals, like um, chemotherapy type chemicals. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure how well it is at getting rid of like glyphosate because you really need that PON1 enzyme to get rid of it. But I'm sure, mm-hmm. I'm sure it helps. Um, it certainly helps. And people that don't sweat, they tend to become very toxic. And one of the most important things to help them return back to health is to get them to sweat, um, which is a different path. You know, that's a different path for everybody, but in general, it's just improve your health and then your sweating will begin to Mm -hmm. increase. Um, So, yeah, it's a crucial pathway that we use, not just for detox, but also for more so for temperature regulation. Um, I don't have specifics on what it doesn't bypass but it doesn't bypass everything and or it doesn't include everything there are things that can't you can't get out and then you know if you are sweating a lot you to detox you need to make sure you're getting plenty of electrolytes and things and then um some people will take like large doses of niacin before they sweat to really help um with the detox piece although that's really uncomfortable but it doesn't work
0: for years back to when i was chefing um women were always asking me what I did for my skin. And I said, well, sweat 12, 10 to 12 hours a day. That really is amazing. <laughs> and for probably 10 of those years, I, before I'd go, uh, particularly when I was working the early mornings, when I'd be making bread at 7 in the morning, I would take 400 milligrams of niacin when i go to work, which would fire, would, would light me up, literally. People would come in the first time my kitchen crew would come in and see me just like on fire they were like are you okay man what's going on are you okay dude what's and i was just it would burn off it a little bit but it's a fierce thing but boy it made yeah. my skin it made my skin amazing but i don't know oh, why I yeah. Stopped doing it.
1: yeah you're making me want to go take niacin I, I can't really take niacin because it makes my blood pressure go too low um but certainly because it increases nitric oxide um but niacin is crucial for health um And it's a wonderful way to, you know, get more dilation of blood to your skin, which is why you get Mm -hmm. all red, you know, and then it can also lower cholesterol, um, lower blood pressure. Um, I nearly died of a a pellagra niacin deficiency when I was um, 20. Yeah, I weighed about, I had horrible diarrhea um, and was just wasting away I was in my early 20s and I weighed about 70 some odd pounds and it was um, a chiropractor in Austin that ended up telling me well you need to uh, take some vitamin b3 so he gave me some niacinamide and the diarrhea stopped that day and that was and then I slowly gained my weight back Um, but that was a big aha moment for me too because I realized that I had this vision that I was the problem before that because no doctor had, like, figured out what the environmental trigger was. And I had this vision, like, it was something wrong with me. And then after I was properly diagnosed with pellagra and given the niacinamide, I realized it was my environment that was the problem and not me. And um, so that's just kind of an interesting side note, I guess.
0: Yeah. It's amazing how things can really turn you and go, wait a minute, I'm not the problem. Mm-hmm. But the environment's the problem. And the been, problem we... is
1: that, you know, uh, the problem is that our medical system is not designed to find environmental triggers. Um, they're not really testing for all the vitamin deficiencies. They're not testing for all the chemical toxicities. If you go and you ask a doctor, you know, an average doctor, you know, I'm worried, if you tell them, I'm worried about my toxicity levels and BPA and glyphosate and, you know, whatever, then they don't have the tools to really know how to diagnose that or treat it um, or even really what symptoms to look for. Um, And so they're not looking for it and so people are not getting diagnosed. But for those people that are doing extra non-insurance-based medical testing that's looking for some of these toxins like BPA, glyphosate, et cetera, they're all coming back extremely high is what I'm seeing. So I think that's part of, you know, the manipulation is if we don't make it a part of our medical system to look for these chemicals that we know are ubiquitous and dangerous, then people don't have it on their radar and then they'll continue to just be passive and, you know, keep going along with status quo.
0: Mm -hmm. And I will say, I'll add a positive note, which my audience will know is unusual for me, that um, (laughs) I do see a trend in the 10 years I've been doing this show that I'm interviewing in the past four or five years more and more doctors. And I'm not going out of my way to find them as much as they happen to also be. They're MDs, but there's also now they've added the handle functional medicine practitioner. So Mm -hmm. there is a trend of doctors being smarter. Yes, I can just say that. Please send the emails directly to -to talktomeyi at (laughs) gmail.com. The doctors are actually getting smarter. They're using functional medicine. They're using other, they're actually taking advantage of what the medical system has available to them. And they're going, oh, maybe vitamins are important.
1: Yeah, but Um, they're getting that extra training outside of medical school. Yes. So the medical school is still way behind.
0: Yeah. Nicely put. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. i have other words there as well um and i heard or read you say take your health beyond your dna mm-hmm. you on that because i think that's really important yeah
1: yeah yeah so one thing i've noticed is oftentimes i've talked to people about genes for a little bit now and there's often this fear of well you know, what if I find out, what if I find out I have the Alzheimer's gene? What if I find out I have, you know, whatever? And my feeling is, well, you know, you might just find out you have that gene in 50 years when you develop Alzheimer's disease or, and it's too late for you to really make a meaningful impact on your trajectory, or you can do it, you know, find that out now and you can change your environment to actually make a meaningful impact and dramatically decrease your risk. So either way, you know, your genes are what they are. Your DNA is not your destiny, but it certainly can provide a useful roadmap to help prioritize where to spend and use limited resources and time. And so the whole tagline, take your health beyond your DNA, that's just um, that's that's actually a part of my epigenozyme line. That's where I created it originally, because I have this nutritional line that it's really n- nutrients designed for hel- helping people support their health. But specifically, like if you have this gene, you know, consider this nutrient, that type of thing. And so, it's the exa- One example would be like the MTHFR methyl methylfolate issue. You can have an MTHFR gene where you don't methylate and then you can just take, you know, the supplement designed to support better methylation and you can take your health beyond your DNA with that nutrition. You don't have to just use it for supplements. You can also use it for uh, a diet, exercise, many different things. But, you know, it's ultimately I think I feel like our health is somewhat – in our control, it's not necessarily the easy path, but it is an easier path than the having a long term health problem.
0: Mhm, yes, boy, howdy um in the iron curse, you talk about how iron is a double edged sword. Mm-hmm. Why is iron so dangerous? Mm. That's a big question,
1: yeah, 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 so. Well, first, can I explain why it's a double-edged sword and then go from there? Okay. So I say it's a double-edged sword because if you don't have enough iron, you become iron-deficient, anemic, and that can kill you and has killed a lot of people and continues to kill many people throughout the world even today. Um, So if you don't have enough, that's a problem, but if you have too much, it can and does Kill many people as well, and that number of people with the high iron is increasing for a number of reasons. One is because we live in a world where you can get iron very easily, many of the processed foods are fortified with iron, um, which is an issue, especially if you're somebody that already absorbs too much iron and is high in iron um, you know now, like I said, you can go to McDonald's and get you know the hamburger very easily. Um, So people are getting a lot of iron. We have iron supplements. Um, So people are now becoming higher and higher in iron. Also, people are living longer. Well, technically, um, (laughs) I think the rate is going down. But if you look relative to like 300 years ago, definitely people are living much longer than they were before, even, you know, 100 years ago. And so um, the high iron what the high iron does is it um stores in the body because i've said it before but i'm gonna say it again because it's really important the body has very few tools for getting rid of iron other than largely blood loss because iron is so important for survival and through the gauntlets of history. It has been a huge bottleneck for people to be able to survive. What I mean by that is low iron has caused many women to die during childbirth, during pregnancy. Low iron has killed many young children from malnutrition. Low iron has killed many adults due to a famine in the low iron environment. Low iron has killed many people who who bled too much because of an injury. So evolution created this tool, which is the hemochromatosis gene, where they can absorb more iron. Now, if we transpose that gene onto the modern environment where iron is, we live in an iron-rich environment, we have more people with high iron, and the body doesn't have a good tool for getting rid of it. And so the iron stores in the body. First, it stores in the liver, and it creates a lot of lim- liver inflammation, and it can even cause up to a 200 times increased risk of liver cancer if not properly diagnosed and treated. It'll create fatty liver, liver fibrosis. Um, it will decrease the body's ability to detoxify because you're destroying the liver now. Um, it will also, the iron, once you know it's filled up the liver, it'll go to the brain, and it will cause Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, Bipolar depression, and it does this because it stores in the tissues, but it also creates a huge amount of oxidative stress, tissue damage, free radicals. It's like throwing gasoline on a fire, basically. Um, It'll once you know it'll go to the brain, it'll go to the pancreas, it'll destroy the pancreas, and it'll cause diabetes type 1, type 2, insulin resistance. It'll go to the heart and cause cardiovascular disease, arrhythmia, heart attack, um, heart heart stiffness. Um, It'll go to the um, skin, and it'll cause the skin to become bronze, um, increased risk for skin cancer. It'll go to the joints, creating arthritis, gout, Um, it'll go to the spleen, creating immune problems, Um, and the list goes on. There's really no part of the body that is safe. Oh, it goes to the anterior pituitary gland, the anterior pituitary gland, and it destroys the anterior pituitary gland. It goes to the ovaries and the testes, destroying those. So people get a lot of um, issues with infertility, not making enough hormones, thyroid issues, low testosterone. There's just um, a plethora of ways that iron destroys the body. And it's largely based on creative ma- creating massive amounts of oxidative stress because iron can and does create a lot of oxidative stress if there is too much. And there are many people that have too much.
0: There was a group I belong, well, I still belong to, called the Smart Life Forum. And a group of it's a group of retired, like practitioners, doctors, and various people, many people who've written the medical training books for universities, who've expanded their horizon of knowledge. And a lot of them would talk about and would advocate after a certain age of actually going and giving blood, to give blood, and also because it would help you reduce your iron content. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Um, so in general, if you look just at the statistics, people who donate blood tend to live longer. Now I see blood donation or any therapeutic blood removal because not everybody can donate blood, but any, I see any blood removal like that as a medical procedure because it is a medical procedure. So um, in my Opinion The best route is to make sure that you have a CBC and a full iron panel prior to having blood removed because there are some cases where you can have poor side effects from having blood removed. Um, for example, if you have low red blood cells, then if you donate blood or have blood removed, then you become even lower in red blood cells. And then your body is now even more anemic. And so I don't love it when people go and donate blood and don't have, you know, that full iron panel and CBC. Having said that, for a lot of people, it's helping them. I just see it as a medical procedure. And I don't, tend to, you know, just tell people, go out and willy-nilly donate blood. I always want to look at their CBC and their iron panel first. Um, but I guess worst case scenario is you donate blood and you become anemic and you feel really tired and then your body starts making, you know, more and then you probably don't want to donate blood again after that because you feel bad. So, But whenever you do donate blood, they will check your hemoglobin, and if your hemoglobin's low, they won't let you donate blood um However, they don't always check the red blood cells, so you could still be kind of low in red blood cells, and then you could create an issue there.
0: This makes me jump to a question I was going to ask you a while back when you were first going with your husband to doctors and telling the doctor. Or talking I'll say it I'll say it this way. And talking with the doctor about some of the possible issues going on with your husband. Did you run into that medical doctor versus chiropractor doctor schism?
1: <laughs> oh, and what did yeah, you do? Did,
0: did you bring a table? Well, no, <laughs> actually, you
1: know what? That was um although it, it was a hard time in my life, it was as much of I think like a confidence building exercise because um, I didn't realize how much I knew until I went through those experiences. And I was always very respectful, but at the same time, trying to defend and have my husband's best interests, you know, at heart. And in doing that, um there were some heated moments with a couple of people, mostly the endocrinologists, but um, yeah, it was, it was really a one after the other of me kind of like giving them the information that they needed them kind of dismissing me. And then, well, often what would happen is I'd give them the information they needed, the labs, the genes, you know, my thoughts, whatever, they would ask me, what do you do in healthcare? And I would say, I'm a chiropractor. I would be dismissed. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately after much wasted time and money, I would end up being, you know, right months later with the exception of the hematologist, the hematologist got it right immediately. As soon as I gave him the genes in the labs, um the gastroenterologist missed it and took us down a misdiagnosis rabbit hole that I had to pull us out of. Um otherwise we would have wasted, you know, at least a year. Um eventually we did get referred to the hematologist. They got it right. Then we got referred to the endocrinologist, the endocrinologist was referred we were referred there because my husband based on the labs that I was running on him which were more thorough than what anybody else was running on him based on the labs I was running on him he had high periodically high DHEA and cortisol those are like stress hormones So we went to the endocrinologist. They gave her, you know, my summary. I said, you know, I think he has Cushing's. She said he doesn't have Cushing's. He doesn't look like someone with Cushing's. He doesn't have high blood sugar like someone with Cushing's. So then they go through the process of working him up, and six months later he's having brain surgery because he has Cushing's. He has a pituitary tumor that's causing him to um, have uh, Cushing's, have high cortisol. It wasn't until I was writing the Iron Curse, that I realized that the anterior pituitary gland, which is where my husband's tumor is located, is extremely susceptible to iron-induced damage. Which I don't feel like that's necessarily a, you know, I don't think that's 100 percent just, um, what's the word I'm looking for here, uh, random. So and I think that the fact that he had high iron for a long period of time undiagnosed um, was contributing to more oxidative stress and damage in his pituitary gland. And that that if not caused certainly didn't help the um, him getting a pituitary tumor. So, and then after the endocrinologist, we go to the neurosurgeons where they do surgery and um, you know, they were relatively nice, although the, all, every single time, every single time I start talking, they ask me, what do you do in the medical field? I'm a chiropractor. And then it's like the conversation changes.
0: Mhm. Mhm. That's a whole other show.
1: Yeah. I, <laughs> having I have said old, that,
0: yeah. Having said that, you, you I made did it true. Realize,
1: yeah. I didn't realize <laughs> how much I knew until I had to go through that because in my mind, I think I had this inferiority complex of, well, I'm just a chiropractor and you know, they're medical Mm -hmm. doctors and then they, and they're specialists. So they have to know more about this than me. And then I realized through many, many, many experiences, too many for me to go through in the segment of this talk show, Mm -hmm. uh, this radio show, but with many, many, many experience, I realized, Oh, I know a lot and I need to give myself credit and, these people don't always know as much as you would expect. And I really need to be on top of my game here because my husband's life is, you know, in their hands.
0: Mhm. Mhm. Yeah, really. I would do a whole show on that sometime. Anytime you want to do that. I have a yeah. number of associates who are chiropractors. I have an old friend who is doing Gerson protocols, which is a radical nutritional program and a supplement and detox program for cancer. This is 30 years ago, almost now. And he got in a lot of trouble because he was doing some of the things that you're doing along with the Gerson protocol. And he was and it was only because he had confidence. Well, he was just cocky mm-hmm. in a kind way. And it just it was, that was the only way he got through was a, and eventually by the time he was. This is, as I say, almost 30 years ago. On staff, he had a medical doctor. On staff, he had an acupuncturist. On staff, he had a psychiatrist. So he could, people could come in and have a full panel of conversations with everybody. And it was back in the day when chiropractors were, like, not shunned, but certainly not respected at a level of, like, it's because of chiropractors like you that it's it's bringing chiropractic more into the field, at least in my mind.
1: Yeah, I mean, we've, we, we still have a long way to go. I mean, I just... Yeah. There's just still that element of, oh, you're, you're are, there, are, are they doctors? Are you is that the doctor? <laughs> like, yeah. Yes. We are doctors. We are healthcare <laughs> providers. We do not prescribe or do surgery. We have to fix things naturally.
0: Right. <laughs> we hate that. No prescribing. Um okay. <laughs> yeah. That's my own bad words. Um and there's gonna be a part two. There has to be a part two. Um yes. What is the Iron Course Workshop and what is your amazing Lab Genomics Workshop series? Because so, I went there and I'm like, I just need to do all of these. I love all of these subjects. They
1: are they're they're good. They're all. I, I mean, I say that they're mine. I, I'm slightly biased. So um, the Iron curse Workshop is a series that it's pre recorded for you to watch at your convenience, and we recorded it live. And that was my first Lab Genomics course to record and it basically goes through a lot it mirrors my upcoming books iron curse um but it i teach things in a different way it, you know sometimes it's easier to teach something um by showing it through showing labs and through showing you know the pictures rather than through i mean you've seen my book the iron curse it's pretty deep as far as like the wording goes yeah And Mm -hmm. so, but I, but I needed that in there and I needed the references and I needed the support to really support what I'm saying because I don't want, I know that because I'm a chiropractor and because I'm really saying things that are true, but not necessarily convenient and, you know, status quo, I needed to have plenty of references to support what I'm putting in there. Um, So there's more references in the book, but you know, if you, just want kind of an overarching idea of the hemochromatosis anemias. How to diagnose? Um, talk to your doctors about specific um, actions you can do as far as supplements, removing blood, when and how. Um, but you know, it, it covers a lot. I cover a lot in that workshop. There's um, five um, about about seven hours in that, and then um, I have a one hour MTHFR methylation workshop where I go through the genes and the environmental factors. And then I have a, a gut and immune one, which, um, I'm partial to, cause I, I have, you know, Crohn's and celiac. So I think that's like such a great one. Um, because a lot of people really don't understand celiac disease and the celiac genes. And I go through leaky gut and IBD and um, a lot of the genetic and environmental things that, you know, you need to know about. Um, So many people have gut problems now. And then um, the upcoming one is about Alzheimer's, Parkinson's and cognitive decline, dementia. So that's in September. And then ultimately I'm going to have many more. It's kind of my goal to just put out a variety of different topics that I think are important because there's, you know, good, genetic, um, genes that are very valuable as far as risk factors. And there's also a lot of research showing what you can do to prevent those genes from creating health problems. And so I just want, you know, the world to know this stuff because it's important and needs to be out there. And there's not enough people that are really putting it together in a organized and easy to understand fashion. So I'm trying to do that.
0: And where can our listeners find those? find the information about you. We're at that point where I have to ask you where people can find out more about you, your right. book and those classes.
1: Yeah. So everything's at drchristysutton.com, um, which is also If They both go to the same page, which is has all the workshops, my books, the genetic detoxification report, the supplements that are, um, you know, everything I've talked about, that's kind of where you can find all of it. Wonderful. Thank you so ask. much. I
0: I have other questions, but we can't. Okay,
1: let's keep going. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, we You're can in. just We're keep done. going.
0: <laughs> We're done. That was great, okay. Christy. Thank well, you thank so you. much. Thank
1: you for your time.
0: You bet. All right, everybody. Have a great rest of the week. Bye-bye.